We've been in the book of Galatians today, and if you weren't with us in the morning, I would hope that you might be able to uh, listen to that recording so that you uh, would be able to catch up as to where we are in Galatians and what we're uh, seeking to uh, learn. Uh, let's pick up the context in Galatians chapter 3. What has happened is uh, Paul has led a group of uh, Galatians to the Lord, uh, four major cities, a lot of uh, small areas, a lot of churches in this region. And Judaizers, uh, he calls them uh, false brethren, had followed him around to the churches that he'd planted saying, he's not a real apostle, he's teaching easy believism, you wouldn't be saved unless you added to your Christianity adoption of the Mosaic law, which would include the need to be circumcised and obey the laws of Moses and obey the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses. The Galatians were perplexed and were wavering as to whether they were actually going to begin to uh, keep the law. And I was suggesting to us this morning uh, that this is not wildly out of bounds as far as the susceptibility of Christians today, uh, because the entire concept of grace is so foreign to us, so unlike who we are uh, as fallen individuals, though made in the image of God, but fallen, uh, that we're tempted to contribute to our salvation. And I said this morning, even if we think that God has done his 98%, we're tempted to say, I, I can contribute, contribute my 2%. And Paul is saying, if you change the gospel like that, that is no gospel at all, and you deserve to be accursed. Let's look then at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? He's saying that the way in which I taught the gospel to you it was so vivid. It was as if you could see Jesus crucified. And he says, with that picture in your mind, how could you possibly think that you're contributing to it in any way? It is 100% the work of Christ, not any of our contribution at all. Verse 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer to that is quite obvious. He did not teach them to obey the law to be saved. He taught them the way in which we receive a gift from God is by faith. Regardless of dispensation, it has always been by faith that we receive. And similarly, in any dispensation, it has always been on the basis of God's offer of grace. And ultimately, in any dispensation, it's always been because of the work of Christ and the cross. However, the understanding of all of this and the amount of revelation given to individuals at certain times has varied, but you have always entrusted yourself to the offer that God has given as he's extended it by grace, and you've always received it by faith. So he says, when I preach the gospel to you, 
And you know it worked because you have the Spirit. And the Spirit has done miracles with you. So how did you get the Spirit? Now, they'd have to answer, well, we did what you told us to do. We responded in faith. And he says, exactly. Okay, so if you received salvation by faith, why are you now trying to be sanctified by works? How in the world do you think that God then would shape your character to become more Christ-like and work in you on the basis of things that you do? Does that make any sense to you? It shouldn't. He says, verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, meaning having originally gotten saved by responding to the free offer by grace, by exercising faith, and now receiving the Spirit, are you being perfected, and by that he means growing in your sanctification to the ultimate goal of eventually being glorified and being made perfect, are you being perfected by the flesh, by your efforts? And what I was arguing this morning at great length, and again, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to it, is that everything that God has done for us, everything I've received from him, from justification to sanctification to glorification, is by grace. And nothing I do obligates him to do anything in return. That he asks me to serve him out of love, and that's part of the sanctification process as well. What I'm doing is not keeping the law to earn sanctification, but I am serving him out of love, and he rewards me out of grace. And he says, almost in desperation, verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain? I mean, is it possible you're not saved? If indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, and all of us could testify of what the Lord has done in our lives now that we have believed in him, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he work miracles in your life because he was obligated to do so, because contractually you obligated him by keeping his law? That's what Paul's asking. And you should say, as you reason with Paul, well, of course not. That would make no sense. But I was arguing this morning, oh, but we're sorely tempted as human beings who had been fallen, though now redeemed, to imagine, even now, as redeemed individuals, that if we behave, if we are good, if we, let's throw in, keep the law, since the Judaizers were saying you need to keep the law, that then God will bless us in such a way that we'll get from him what we want, that he'll do the miracles for us, as we want. And I was suggesting in prayer, we often reason with God this way. We rehearse for him how well we have done, and on the basis of that say, how about doing something for me? We sometimes bribe our kids. It's probably even worse when we're grandparents and bribe our grandkids, and we give them candy and all kinds of things we probably should not give them. I was reared by dentists, so I didn't eat candy growing up. But when it comes to something as serious as how we gain relationship with God, 
we should know that it's on the basis of God's grace extended to us as we receive it by faith. And then, brilliantly, probably by the leading of the Spirit, he goes back into history and skips Moses and the law and predates him and goes back to the father of their entire race, Abraham himself. And he says, how did Abraham get saved? Did Abraham obey the law to get saved? Why, the law didn't even exist yet. So how did Abraham get saved? Well, he answers the question. He is quoting from Genesis 15, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God made him a promise that was unbelievable, and it took some work, but Abraham believed him, and God says, I will reckon this or count this. That's an accounting term, if any of you guys do accounting, in which you move a debit to a credit. I will move it from a debit to a credit, and I will count it as righteousness because you believed me. If Abraham was saved by faith, what does that make us? The Judaizers are completely wrong here. He says, verse 7, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith that are of sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And this is an amazing uh, theological explanation of how the gospel was in a nutshell in this promise all the way back in Genesis 12 when he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And he says, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in you. Now, once we unpack this, we begin to realize, how did that happen? How did the nations of the world receive a blessing from God through the seed of Abraham? Well, the seed eventually turns out to be Jesus Christ. We receive forgiveness of our sins because of the work of Jesus Christ, who's a descendant of Abraham. So he has made a great nation of Abraham. He has saved us by a descendant of Abraham. Jesus made it possible for him to forgive us. Therefore, he was preaching the gospel, believe it or not, in Genesis 12 when he said, all the nations shall be blessed in you. And how did that happen? By faith not by the works of the law. They'd not even come into existence yet. Verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Deuteronomy 27, 26. So often my students say, let's grade on a curve. That was a really hard exam. So take the whole rubric and knock it down a few steps and start it at the highest student and then work your way down for there. Curve the grades, please. Give us grace. I should have answered them according to this. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In other words, you have to keep the law in its entirety for it to work. 
Imagine you're counseling a guy who is mistreating his wife, and he comes to yet again another counseling session, and he purports to be improving, and he says, I am beating my wife much less now. And is your response going to be patting him on the back and saying, you're getting better every week. This is progress. You're going to be horrified, and you're going to say, you can't beat her at all, at all, none. So there's no progress here if you're still beating her. You can't beat her at all, and it's the same thing with the law. Unless you keep the law in its entirety, it's not going to work. I was saying this morning, try to swim to Catalina. Some of us will make it farther than others, but not one of us is going to make it all the way there. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. The answer is, we never, ever, no one has ever been saved by keeping the law. So even if you say, well, I'll take Christianity and I'll add to it the law, you have ruined it all, he said in chapter 1. That's no gospel at all. The answer is we live by faith. The righteous man lives by faith, and God credits Christ's righteousness that he has demonstrated on the cross to us and gives us the ability then to relate to him on a basis of righteousness. Verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, which are his readers, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So... <clears throat> Those of us who read the law are saying, like, I'm supposed to meditate on his law day and night. It's supposed to be sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. Paul, why are you saying the law can't save me then? Why should I meditate on it day and night if it's not going to save me? We have completely misunderstood. We think if it doesn't achieve salvation for us, it was useless which is completely contrary to what God has said all along. No, that's not true. So how can the law be good and us not be saved by the law? What's the purpose of the law then? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 19, Galatians 3:19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, to tell you it is wrong to do such and such. He wrote it down so you would have it in writing. You may not do that. I was at a camp board meeting last night, and I have a funny memory about one time I flew out from the Midwest to speak at camp, and the director was going through the rules on the very first uh, afternoon or evening that we were there. And as he's reading through the rules, he came across one that said, thou shalt not throw rocks in the pool. And I felt a little like Paul when he said, I never even heard of covetousness. Uh, I didn't even know about covetousness. And he says, well, 
now that I found out about covetousness, now I'm very aware of it. Now I'm condemning myself because I covet all the time. I, I regularly see things that belong to other people that I'd like to steal and make my own. So at a recreational time in the afternoon, I went to the pool, met the lifeguard there, and realized why it was they had a problem with campers throwing rocks in the pool. She was horrible. She was so mean. She was like a Nazi. So kids, when she wasn't watching, would throw rocks in the pool, and then she'd make everyone get out. She, nice and dry, would have to dive to the bottom of the pool to get the rock out. And then after she got out dripping wet, she'd let us get back in the pool. Happened numerous times that afternoon. I thought, like, I can see why they made a new law. Thou shalt not throw rocks in the pool. Isn't it interesting that the more we know about the law, the more it condemns us because as a speaker, I was sorely tempted to throw rocks in the pool. It looked like a lot of fun. <laughs> Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, that would be Moses, so you have two intermediaries between God and the people. You have the angels first, then Moses. Until the seed should come, which the paragraph I skipped is identified as Jesus Christ himself, to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. So having a mediator, you need someone to go in between the two parties. But he says, however, how was it originally given to Abraham? No intermediary. It was God's promise to Abraham regardless of how Abraham responded. This I will do for you. God was the only one that made the promise. In fact, if you remember in Genesis 15, when he put Abraham to sleep and cut the animals in, in half and walked between them, only God promised. Abraham didn't have to promise. It was an unconditional covenant. Therefore, he says, that's how superior the way of faith is to the way of law. Verse 21, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Stupid idea, he says. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. What he has just said is one of the most profound things ever said in all of Scripture because it speaks to the plan of God before the creation of the heavens and the earth and before the creation of human beings. If we could have been saved by keeping the law that's how it would have worked. Done. He doesn't have to send his son. Jesus doesn't have to die. But here's the problem. Not anyone, anywhere, at any time, can keep his law perfectly. Not one of us is righteous like God. Well, if that's true, then how could anyone ever be saved? Oh, glad you asked. Verse 22. But the scripture has... And this translation says, shut up, and probably a better way to render this would be boxed in. In other words, confined, limited, prevented from moving. The scripture has boxed in all men under sin, entrapped them with the realization, I can't do it. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
The promise is eternal life, and if we will believe him and accept his free offer, he will forgive our sins and give us eternal life. Why the law then? The law then was to prevent us from ever thinking we could do it ourselves and cause us to humble ourselves before God and say, I need your grace. Have you ever been at such a loss that you've had to cry out to someone for grace and you say, I don't deserve this. I know that you could say no, but I ask you, would you please be gracious to me? That's where God wants us. He wants us where we say, I realize I don't deserve it. I realize I shouldn't be saved because of who I am and what I've done, but I'd like to be. If you offer me salvation, I will believe you, and I will stop trusting in myself, and I'll entrust myself to you, and I will receive the free gift of salvation. Again, by our own pride, there are times in which we say, I don't know if I can humble myself that much. A friend of mine came out with me from Iowa uh, to a little quick Southern California vacation. And one of the things we did is we went surfing with my younger brother, Dave. Some of you know him. He had all the surfboards. And we pulled into this parking lot against the beach. And I go, like, where do you pay for the parking? He goes, oh, it's a different parking lot further up. Don't worry, they never check. So we went surfing, came back, $62 ticket on my windshield. My friend says, that's terrible, I'll pay it. I go, you're not going to pay it, you're my guest. No, I'll pay it. He mails me a check for $62. In pride, though he was gracious and kind and generous, in pride, I refused to cash the check. So he calls me up and says, I'm trying to balance my checkbook. Cash the check. I tell you, I resisted him for several months of calls, and I've continued to resist him to this day. Out of my obstinate pride, no, I'll pay my parking ticket, thank you very much. What's wrong with me? That if a friend extends grace to me, I won't take it. And what's wrong with us? When God extends grace to us, we won't take it. It's absolutely necessary that we boxed up under sin to the point where we realize there's no way out unless God extends grace to me. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody, in a sense of being confined under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become, and this translation says, our tutor. The actual word there is the word that you'd use of a servant that you have hired, sometimes it would be a slave, that would care for your children. Let's say you're a wealthy person in a large household and you have a lot of servants or slaves and you even are so busy in your own world that you don't even care for your own children. You let the servants care for your children. You even let them care for your children's education. So this is sometimes translated a schoolmaster. The law has become our tutor, and frankly, in those days, those kinds of servants weren't kind to the kids, and they tended to beat them into doing their homework. 
And you get that sense of how the law beats us, but leads us to the only way out. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And by all, he means in you Gentiles too. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ, even you Galatians. Therefore, there's neither, and these words in context are powerful, based on an argument that's been going on for three chapters now, because the church was being rocked by these Judaizers who said, no, you can't be saved by Christ alone. Christ plus the law. So be circumcised, keep the law, even the dietary restrictions of the law. And he says, no, by faith, you are sons of God. By faith, you are baptized into Christ. By faith, you are clothed with Christ. Now read verse 28. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Greek being a Gentile, in other words, Galatians. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you're not a follower of Moses. You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, the promise given to Abraham. As a footnote, he's not saying that we're replacing Israel and that we're the new Israel and that the millennium is taking place now. He's not in any way saying anything close to that. He's just saying we're saved the same way that Abraham is saved. We look to Abraham the believer as our father of all who believe. You might say, well, I still don't understand why he gave the law then and kept them under the law for such a long period. It's because he was treating them like children, but now he wants to treat them like adolescents. He wants them to have learned from their childhood education and now, with greater freedom, act like adolescents. In the next paragraph in chapter 4, he begins to talk about how there is a child, again in a rich household with many servants, and he says the child can be the heir of everything, so that when daddy dies, he's going to get it all. But when he's a kid, everyone bosses him around, including the servants. So it's as if he's lowest on the order of being able to decide anything for himself because everybody seems to outrank him. But he says the kid's the heir, and when he grows up, he'll be the owner of everything. Using that analogy... He then says, let's look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He's bringing them to the point where they're understanding that he's saying, by giving you the Holy Spirit, I have given you the law in your heart. Do you remember in Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36 when God was complaining to Israel, why don't you remember what I told you to do? It's like you can't even remember it. He says, I'll make a new covenant with you. We call that the New Testament, the new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to write that law on your hearts. I'm going to give you a new heart because your heart's like stone. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to place my Holy Spirit within you. 
What is he describing? He's describing regeneration. He's describing what happens when we're saved following the work of Christ on the cross. He's talking about new covenant blessings, which will be poured out full force in the millennial kingdom, but for which we get a foretaste now in the New Testament to make Israel jealous. He says, I want you to appreciate what I'm giving you when I give you the Holy Spirit. Jump ahead then to chapter 5. And he will say, with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, you don't need the law because the Spirit is with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 and a quarter days in a year, and he can guide you as to what I want you to do. He'll be far more specific than the law ever could be. Chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. In other words, don't listen to these Judaizers who have confused you. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He'd argued in the previous chapter to go back to the law would be to make yourself a slave to the law again. He says, I set you free from the law and from that kind of slavery. Why would you want to go back to it? Verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, and some of them were considering receiving circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So if you go down that path and you say, Christ didn't do it all, I have to do some of it, and you add to the reception of the gospel by faith the need to contribute to it, such as taking circumcision, he says, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You have destroyed the gospel, and Christ is not a benefit to you because you're saying God would respond to your action as if that performance actually earns that favor with him. He says in verse 3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. So not just circumcision, let's throw in the whole law and let's throw in every aspect of the law, including the dietary restrictions. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. Harsh, harsh words for his Galatians. And yet you'll see him soften a little later in the book where he says, I have better hope for you. In other words, I think this letter is going to stop you from making a huge mistake and I think you'll be okay. For we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. This is so rattling, so revolutionary. We just have to slow down and assimilate this for a moment. Did he just say... Whether you're circumcised or not circumcised doesn't matter. Is that what he said? Take it in context. With the Jewish nation, he chose them specially, and he gave a sign of that covenant, which was circumcision. Here's where you'd make a horrible mistake. If you thought that if you were a boy, and when you were eight days old, that physical surgery saved you for eternity, you've completely misunderstood 
relationship with God. Yes, it was a sign of the covenant. Yes, it labeled you as one who was a follower of the one true God. But that couldn't possibly save you. Never did, never will. But is it a good thing? Yes, if you're a Jew under the law as a sign of the covenant, yes. But to require it of Titus, remember he took Titus before the so-called pillars of the Jerusalem church and they didn't compel Titus to be circumcised. So neither should they compel the Galatians to be circumcised. So he's right when he says the actual truth is we receive God's love by faith. I dare you to underline that in verse 6 and meditate on that for hours to come as to what he just said there. He says it's not circumcision, it's faith working through love. If I want an ethic of how I relate to God, it's faith working through love. He extends himself to me by love. I receive his love by faith. I respond to his love with loving acts. And I don't do it to manipulate it. I do it out of responsive love, out of a true heartfelt desire to show him my love, which, friends, is not a work. To love God in return is not a work. It's responding to his love. Verse 7, you were running well before the Judaizers came. Who hindered you from obeying this truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. This is not from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. In other words, a little bad doctrine can ruin the whole gospel message. Verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who's disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And then for his opponents, he says something rather startling. If you've been watching the debates between the presidential candidates, you've probably been startled by the things that they were saying. Take on verse 12, for example. Would that those who are troubling you, these Judaizers, since they're so hung up on circumcision, would that they would even, and the word is cut off, but it's in the middle voice, which is reflexive, which means do it to yourself. Would that you take that sharp stone, since circumcision means that much to you, and take it upon yourself and mutilate yourself, emasculate yourself? If that's what you think salvation is, go to the nth degree. Wow. Wow. That's how important it is to get doctrine right. Because if the truth of the gospel is at stake, it's worth fighting for. If the issues are trivial, we can see past them and get along with each other. But if it's the truth of the gospel, and if that's at stake, we've got to be absolutely clear that we're preaching it correctly. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Again, this is a problem rampant in 21st century Christianity. The thought is, oh, I don't have to obey the law of Moses? Oh, 
That must mean there are no rules. Not at all. I was at one camp in which, not Verdugo, different camp, in which the director says there's one rule at this camp. I was thinking, like, what rule will this be? No messing around. What he meant was, whatever I don't like you doing, I'm going to stop you from doing it and say, hey, that's messing around. Can't do that. No, God is way more specific with us than that. He says he's placed his spirit within us, and the spirit is the one who's going to guide us, and we're to walk according to the spirit and keep in step with him. So he says, again, here is another line worth underlining as far as the ethic that he says we'll live by. Through love, serve one another. Now that is going to cover a lot of the law. If we say, through love, serve one another. So try on covetousness, for example. Can I covet what belongs to you and steal from you and spend it on my own pleasures? Not if I love you, I can't. Not if I have to serve you out of love, I can't. It's going to cover a lot of ground if the ethic is through love, serve one another. For he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But unfortunately, they're fighting among themselves. He says, if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk hand in hand with the Spirit. Let the Spirit guide you, and He will show you where to go. He'll show you what to do. He'll show you how to behave. He'll show you what's right and wrong. Let the Spirit guide you. The Spirit is not going to be more strict than necessary, nor is He going to be more loose than necessary. He knows your weaknesses. He knows who you are. He knows your situations. He's going to guide you morally as to what is right and wrong. Walk with the Spirit. In fact, he's so brave as to say in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Really? So the Spirit then becomes the law for me. We sometimes talk about what the will of God is for our lives, and we say, I'm seeking the will of God. Well, how do I determine the will of God? Well, there, there are many ways, but in this context, he's saying, lean on the guidance of the Spirit, and the Spirit will guide you as to what to do, what to say, and how to live in a manner that's pleasing to me. You're not under the law if you follow the Spirit. When I was young, I was asked to memorize the fruit of the Spirit. It's found right here in this chapter. I memorized it, and there was one phrase at the end of the list of the fruit when it said, against such things there is no law. I was just a kid at the time. So I knew what love, joy, peace means. I got all that. But I had to memorize the against such there is no law, having no idea what it meant. It wasn't until I grew up and studied the book of Galatians and read it in context, that I finally said, oh, if I'm walking in step with the Spirit, I'm not going to be committing the deeds of the flesh, like immorality, impurity, sensuality, none of that. No, I'm not going to be doing that. 
I'm going to be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says, and against such things there is no law. In other words, this isn't contradictory to the law. This is the fulfillment of what the law should have been, where we previously were treated, if you think of ourselves as people who followed God and as the Jews, the Jews followed God through the Mosaic law, treated rather juvenilely. But now, as grown-ups or as adolescents, they're asked to live in accordance with the Spirit. Just think of the ethics of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Can you see the ethics in that? Do you see how restraining that is? And he says, therefore, you don't need the Mosaic Law. It's not that it was bad. It served its purpose. It drove you to salvation in Christ by faith alone. Verse 24 now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, we have died to allegiance to feeling compelled to sin according to these temptations. And we now realize I'm controlled by Christ and filled with the Spirit and I have the power to resist. And he says, if you live by the Spirit, in other words, if we get life by the Spirit, Let's also walk by the Spirit. And a different word there, a word almost like an army that marches in which you all keep in proper step with each other. And he says, let us walk in a sense of keep in step with the Holy Spirit, following him, doing what he asks. Oh, Father, we turn to you and we cry out to you and we say, oh, How wonderful your grace is. How beyond our imagination it is that you would be so kind, so loving, so forgiving that you'd extend grace to us. Oh, Father, may we not pollute it. May we not mess it up. May we not reinterpret it. May we not add to it. May we let grace be grace. And as you've asked us to respond to you in faith and receive the offer of salvation, to receive into our lives your grace, we ask that then we would use that as our ethic to live by grace in every way in which we relate to you. And we ask as we treat others, as we live in community with others, again, that this would be our ethic, that we would, having the Holy Spirit within us, treat each other graciously, lovingly, kindly, as you have treated us. Oh, Father, forgive us if in any way we at times have sought to manipulate you by our behavior, realizing that you're far beyond manipulation. Oh, Father, may we therefore, in gratitude, serve you out of love with a desire to please you, not expecting anything in return, but having read that you will reward us Oh, Father, may our strongest motivation be simply to be loved by you and to reflect that love back to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.